This is Hubonk. I'm your host, Joe Selvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. The proverbial light at the end of the COVID-19 tunnel is slowly coming into focus. With two vaccines awaiting emergency authorization from the FDA, one from Pfizer and the other from the Massachusetts firm Moderna, citizens of the Commonwealth are eager to learn when the vaccines will be available, who will be the first to receive them, and how long will the vaccination process take before we can expect our public lives to return to some semblance of normalcy. My guest today is Dr. Peter Kolchinski, a Harvard-trained virologist who uses his expertise to invest and advise firms in the biotech field. As a virologist and investor, Dr. Kolchinski understands both the technical challenges of building the first ever coronavirus in record time, but also the logistical challenges of moving the vaccine through the approval process and out to the community at large. Dr. Kolchinski will share his insight on the efficacy of the first to market vaccines, the possible risks associated with the vaccines, and what the rollout process will look like in the new year. When I return, I'll be joined by Dr. Peter Kolchinski. Okay, we're back. I'm Joe Silvaggi, and I'm now joined by Dr. Peter Kolchinski of RA Capital. Welcome back to Hubwonk, Peter. Thanks for having me again, Joe. So I want to tap into both your expertise as a virologist, but also your expertise as an investor in biotech. Uh, let's start at the beginning and the remarkable achievement of developing a vaccine in such a short time. What are the typical steps for a vaccine coming to market and how did this global or even uh, or, or, uh, national commitment to finding a COVID-19 vaccine, how did, how did that change the process? Yeah, so um, most of the uh, companies that are working on any given vaccine right now um, are either trying to improve on vaccines that we've got, which means that generally the problem doesn't quite feel as urgent, or to the extent that they're working on a uh, new vaccine uh, for a new disease, you know, let's say dengue, um, there's certainly an urgency in parts of the world, but it just doesn't quite feel like a global, you know, uh, you know, unifying, uh, you know, problem, right? And so uh, they proceed cautiously, knowing that, you know, they should put some money towards showing that the vaccine, uh, you know, first works and, you know, seems safe. Uh, they don't invest a ton in manufacturing up front, right? They make enough doses to run their clinical studies. And as each study shows that the va- vaccine is uh, safe and effective and likely to be approved, then towards the end, they start investing in manufacturing. We did everything in parallel here because this is a huge crisis for everybody around the world, right? And we discovered just, you know, how fast you can do this when you parallel track, you know, a lot of different things. So you mentioned, um, uh, you know, the things were, we, we knew we didn't have a, a cure for uh, COVID or a vaccine for COVID. So it was a big problem uh, affecting a lot of people. So we were motivated to, to as you say, fast track or parallel. Uh, is there any, any concern that any corners were cut? In other words, w- no one would argue about the urgency. Uh, how, how would you say, um, is it possible that uh, corners may have been cut? So I think that we've got a ton of data on the safety and efficacy now of these vaccines. Um, and I think in terms of taking reasonable, uh, chances, you know, given the real risks of, uh, COVID, um, I don't feel that there are any important corners, 
that were cut. You know, if uh, this weren't COVID, if this were the common cold, uh, I have no doubt that, you know, the FDA and European agencies would want to see longer term uh, data just to, you know, dot those I's and cross those T's. But this isn't the common cold. This is COVID. Um, and so when you look at that uh, benefit risk, I think that, uh, you know, everything is preceded um, like you'd want it to. I mean, if they took longer to review this, to be extra careful, if this is absolutely safe, you'd have thousands of people dying of a disease yeah. that we know is not safe, right? right. So right. Uh, not doing anything is its own risk. Indeed. Uh, let's go, I'm going to tap into your uh, virologist uh, um, background right here and explain to us, uh, this is both the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines are messenger RNA uh, vaccines. What does that mean? How does that type of vaccine differ from ones that, you know, everyone listening to the show has already gotten? Yeah. So, um, you know, in the earlier days of uh, COVID onset, you know, I, I turned to Twitter to start writing um, sort of these virology explainers with lots of colorful analogies. So certainly the, your audience is welcome to look me up on uh, Twitter uh, and, and read them. But I'll summarize it this way. A vaccine is basically a way of showing your immune system, uh, which if you think of as being like the police, showing them uh, what the bad guy looks like so they can be on the lookout. And vaccines can come in many forms. You can take, grow up a bunch of virus in a, in, um, in a facility and then kill it. And so you're basically delivering like dead bodies to the cops saying, hey, here are dead clones of what the bad guy looks like. Um, now, uh, if you made a mistake and you didn't kill all the bad guys before injecting them into the person, then yeah, you just delivered some live bad guys. Um, in some cases, the vaccines, they weaken the virus. It's called an attenuated viral vaccine. And, uh, you know, basically like throwing ropes around the feet of the bad guy and delivering them on the doorstep of, of the police station. And, uh, you know, in healthy people, the bad guy wouldn't, uh, that weakened bad guy doesn't do anything. But if people have a weakened immune system, sometimes that weakened bad guy can still, you know, hurt them, right? Here, uh, we're dealing with uh, vaccines that uh, basically just show pictures of the bad guy. So protein, I would describe as being a picture of the bad guy. Uh, you know, in the case of mRNA, you can think of it as delivering the instructions for how to draw a picture of the bad guy. It can't hurt you. It's nothing even remotely like the virus, right? So uh, the, uh, the mRNA vaccines, uh, what they do is they basically deliver the instructions for how to uh, draw a picture of the bad guy to the printers in the police station and the police stations print out their own copies. And, you know, delivering instructions is a lot easier than printing up a whole bunch of pictures yourself, which is why mRNA is a faster way to respond to a new bad guy by a bit. In the case of the companies that are uh, delivering uh, protein vaccines like Novax or Sanofi, uh, you know, they have to actually print up a bunch of pictures of the bad guy. They have to, you know, uh, make that protein themselves. Um, and that's got certain advantages uh, as well. But the bottom line is whether you're delivering the instructions or you're delivering the pictures themselves, like you're showing the immune system what the bad guy looks like and putting it on alert. And we can now see that it works. 
I like that analogy. Um, so I'll, I'll ask the next question anyway, because, you know, I think our listeners wonder, uh, is it possible even with now we're not, we, we don't have any, um, dead bad guys, weak bad guys, or, um, you know, yeah, just, just pictures, of just bad pictures. Guys. Is it possible, is it possible to get COVID-19 COVID? from a picture? <laughs> so, um, you can't get COVID-19 from, uh, from a picture from these vaccines. Not, none of the vaccines that are, uh, you know, likely to make it to the market anytime soon have that risk. But there is a risk that uh, people have been mindful of and doesn't appear to be materializing that um, it could predispose somebody to getting uh, a worse case of disease if they did get exposed to the virus. So imagine that the vaccine's supposed to be making uh, your immune system prepared to fight it off, but instead it somehow makes it uh, it makes it so that when you get infected, you get a worse disease. How could that be? You know, and um, just to sort of stretch my analogy a little bit, you could imagine that if you don't show the police a picture of the bad guy at all and a bad guy infects you, the police know that they don't know what the bad guy looks like. And so they go on the hunt trying to figure out who's the bad guy. And when they get a sense of who that is, they react and they uh, clean up the city. Uh, but if you show uh, the police a, a picture of, like the bad guy's brother, right? Uh, or cousin and, you know, looks slightly different Then you just put them off the scent. You've actually made it harder for them to do their jobs. So that might be a way to think about how you could make things worse than if you didn't vaccinate at all. We now have so much data showing that these vaccines really do protect people that uh, I think that there's like negligible or no risk at this point that I can see of these vaccines causing what's called enhanced disease, you know, causing you to get worse COVID, uh, you know, uh, than you would have otherwise. So you're saying that potentially mRNA vaccines have that that danger, but oh, given- any vaccine in theory has that. You mm-hmm. know, uh, I wouldn't say it's just mRNA, um, but at this point, we just haven't seen it. We, you okay. know, so whether it's the AstraZeneca vaccine or uh, you know the mRNA vaccines or the protein-based vaccines or, you know, all the vaccines that we've uh, got data for from around the world at this point, nothing is showing uh, that there's any real complexity to protecting patients. This virus is easy to protect uh, people from. So we've talked about the, the merits of the, the technology, the, the virus itself, but let's talk about the human element. Uh, we all have to get a, a needle in the arm, right? And in both cases, in Moderna's and Pfizer's, it's a shot. Um, it's the, I don't know if it's literally the same shot, but it's a two shots month apart. Um, what's the historical data on uh, how often people come back for that second shot? How does uh, an individual ensure that they are coming back for the right second shot at the right interval? How, how did, how, you know, what are the mechanics and, and the failure rate, honestly, historically? I, I just had the, um, the shingles virus um, uh, vaccine, right? A month apart. And or two months apart, actually. And, uh, you know, I went back. I'm a good doobie, uh, but not maybe everybody doesn't do that. So uh, uh, talk more about that. Yeah, so you're right. And I, I can't tell you the exact rates, but what you're referring to is um, non-compliance or non-adherence. Um, you know, you can prescribe people statin, right? And uh, look at, do they take 30 pills in 30 days? And the answer is oftentimes no, right? So... Um, may not be that big a deal if they skip a few pills here or there in the case of a statin. Um, 
you know, it uh, may be a bigger problem, uh, you know, in the case of some other drugs. Um, you know, if you've got an autoimmune disease and you skip uh, taking a drug, you might get a flare. Uh, and very clearly here, you have, you know, uh, vaccines that only work well if you give two shots. So it would be a real problem if people didn't come in for their second shot. Um, I think that there's probably some differentiation among the vaccines that may emerge in terms of which ones are more protective when you only, you know, end up getting that first shot. Uh, and so in the longer run, uh, you're going to want to use vaccines that if someone, you know, fails to come in for the second shot, they at least have some protection. Um, but uh, there's a right now very clear, uh, distinct uh, advantage to getting that second shot. It doesn't have to be exactly when they say, though, you know, some vaccines, you have to come in on day 21 after the first shot. Some vaccines, it's day 28. The reality is uh, that fir first shot is called your prime shot. It primes the, the engine, so to speak, right? And then the second one boosts it. Well, your body is going to stay primed, uh, you know, for a while. So if you can't make it on the appointed date, uh, then just come in sometime in the next week, two weeks, even three weeks. I mean, don't be blasé about it. Don't say like, oh, it doesn't matter whenever I feel like coming back. Like try to come in at the appointed time. Um, but uh, that second shot, the booster, it will really boost, you know, uh, your immunity. Um, it's you should think of it this way. You got one shot, you're wasting all the effort you went through and whatever discomfort you experienced if you don't, don't then get that second shot. Indeed. Um, now, we talked about how wonderfully um, effective these uh, tests have shown these uh, vaccines to be, uh, one being 90%, the other 95%. Uh, that still isn't 100%. What can you say about the characteristics of, of, of those, if you know, uh, of those who uh, proved that the shot was ineffective. Do you have any sense of, is that yeah. a characteristic of the individual or, or you know, how, yeah, how so does that I, happen? Actually, I would make the case that the vaccine has not been demonstrated to be ineffective in anybody. Mm -hmm. um, it, the question is simply how effective. Mm -hmm. What we've seen, for example, is those people who uh, got vaccinated who still got an infection, odds are it was a much milder infection than it would have otherwise been, right? So, uh, it is well worth everybody's while to get vaccinated. Some protection is better than no protection. Um, the, uh, you know, when you talk about a 90 or 95% uh, effectiveness rate, what it means is um, if previously, you know, by going out into the public, you had a 1% chance of being infected over the next three months, right? then uh, a 90% reduction in your uh, risk of being infected means you have a 0.1% chance of uh, being infected. So it's not zero, but it's a lot lower, right? Uh, and uh, in the case of severe disease, you've seen these vaccines completely, uh, you know, seem to uh, eliminate the risk of uh, severe disease, you know, hospitalizations. So if before you might have had uh, a 0.1% chance of uh, getting COVID that would result in you being hospitalized, now you would appear to have zero, right? And of course, with statistics, nothing's ever zero, but it's much less than 0.1%. So uh, look, we live with risk all the time in our lives. 
we, we all get into cars and we drive, we cross the street, you know, we, we live with a risk of disease. Flu technically can kill people, right? We just need to reduce COVID to the point where it isn't paralyzing our society anymore. And these vaccines are doing it. Um, now, I want to get more into the practical end. Uh, now, we've got this vaccine. I think uh, the FDA final approval, accelerated approval will be next week. And I've heard uh, as early as December 15th, we'll have it here in the Bay State. Uh, the Federal Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices voted 13 to 1 to prioritize vaccine distribution to an estimated 21 million frontline uh, healthcare workers and 3 million residents of long-term care facilities. What do you think about those priorities? Do you think, um, given, you know, the... A limited initial supply is that the is that the right way to um, to allocate the first doses of the vaccines? I I mean it sounds like it's a thoughtful approach. You know, help the people who need it most. Um, and uh, you know, we need our frontline healthcare workers. Um, you know, to keep taking care of the sick, it would be it would really compound the problem, right? If uh, they were incapacitated. Um, so you know, I I'm not going to second guess. Uh, the judgment call of, of people who really deliberated this issue, have the expertise to deliberate it, and knew the consequences of, um, uh, you know, of getting this wrong. Sure. So it's probably a good judgment call. Now, um, again, you may not know the answer to this. Uh, the trials, I think there were 44,000 patients in the trials. Um, uh, and now we're talking about giving uh, the, the vaccines to long-term care facilities. Were there people in the high-risk age group? I don't know if you characterize as above 65, above 75, perhaps people with pre-existing conditions. Do trials test those people? And if not, um, if we're giving these new vaccines to people who haven't, in a sense, been measured in a, in a trial, are there concerns that we're giving someone who's, you know, maybe vulnerable uh, a vaccine that might, might actually hurt them? So I think when you... Um First of all, yes, the trials did include people with all kinds of what are called comorbidities, mm-hmm. uh, people that are overweight, people who have diabetes, um, and uh, included people that are older, um, you know, maybe didn't include the absolute most bedridden, you know, uh, vulnerable people. I mean, it's just hard to get them into a vaccine study. Um, but those are also the people that are at most serious risk of dying from COVID-19. Um, and therefore, when you see that the vaccine is safe and effective in uh, you know, lots of other people, including people with various other kinds of risk factors, then uh, I think it's a very reasonable uh, you know, conclusion that it's gonna be um, you know, a whole lot better than nothing uh, you know, for the most vulnerable patients. So, you know, we're talking about the FDA granting emergency use authorization to these vaccines. That's not the same as a full approval, right? So there is a conscious decision here to make an exception and, you know, authorize these vaccines. And then all these most vulnerable people, probably everybody else, will be studied, you know, after they get uh, their shots. Uh, And in the event that there are any kind of uh, you know, problems that emerge, you know, that will be factored into the decision to grant full approval for these vaccines. So if something goes wrong, we'll hopefully detect it and we'll, uh, narrow who we give these vaccines to in the future. For example, um, we haven't studied, uh, you know, the safety of these vaccines in, uh, young kids, you know, sure. but, uh, 
while I would say that there isn't much risk, uh, you know, from what we've seen of giving it to young kids, um, the, you know, there's just little reason to think that the vaccine would suddenly be risky in, in young kids, given what we know of it. Um, young kids also are at lesser risk of COVID-19 in general. And so there it becomes harder. Like, what don't we know about how this vaccine works in young kids? And is it worth taking that risk when we know that the virus isn't nearly as dangerous uh, in kids? Right. So sure. uh, that may require uh, more trials. Right. But we're already sending kids into schools. We know that they're not the ones that are you know, likely to be at risk. It's about protecting uh, the more vulnerable adults that are around them, the teachers, the parents that are at home, the grandparents. Sure. Um, I've heard that there are populations who uh, ought not to get vaccines, not not particularly this one, but there are, there are conditions or, uh, again, I don't know if the people who are on that list of people who shouldn't be getting vaccines. Is there a population that should not get vaccines? Uh, you know, I'd have to look into that. Um, <laughs> I don't I want think, to stump you. With- I, I think it's, I, I mean, it's conceivable uh, that, that there might be, but, um, you know, I haven't uh, really given that much thought. I think it would be a very small uh, population of patients. Um, I can think of people who are unlikely to benefit uh, from a vaccine, you know, people with rare uh, autoimmune deficiencies. Um, you know, they generally can't mount an immune response against, uh, you know, pathogens. But these are really edge cases. Okay. But um, give some homework, so thank you. All right. I give, we'll follow up. Um, now, uh, there seems to be a national consensus uh, on a political realm that we're not going to mandate these vaccines, at least not initially. Uh, and recent polls suggest that only 64% of Americans are, uh, uh, are confident that the vaccine is safe enough to take uh, right away. What are the best ways, um, do you imagine, to reassure people other than having them listening to this wonderful podcast? What are the best ways to reassure people that the uh, vaccine is safe, uh, uh, effective, and they should uh, uh, go out and get it when they can? I think uh, I would hope that those people that uh, do decide to get the vaccine early um, convey, uh, you know, to everybody else what the experience was like. And, um, you know, don't confuse pain and discomfort and temporary symptoms with any kind of real risk. Uh, you know, these vaccines may be uncomfortable uh, for some people, um, but I think COVID-19 has really uh, made all of us quite uncomfortable, uh, you know, sure. for a lot longer. Um, there, there's going to be data out there that emerge uh, that some people analyze in the wrong way and draw the wrong conclusions. We've seen that all throughout this pandemic. Um, and I think that it's important that people not... Um, you know, go, uh, amplifying, um, you know, unexamined, uh, data and just, you know, anything that confirms, uh, the more fearful, uh, perspective. Um, you know, I've tweeted on this and I've actually communicated with, with the FDA, you know, uh, about some of the ways in which people could data dredge, uh, in order to find correlations, you know, People who get vaccine, vaccinated might decide to schedule that colonoscopy they needed. Well, they've been putting that off. And so when they get the colonoscopy, they might be at a greater uh, risk now of having colorectal cancer discovered than had they gotten the, uh, it, like maybe that cancer discovered at a later stage. So it's more serious than if they had gotten the colonoscopy a year earlier when they should have. Is someone going to then say, 
the vaccine causes, you know, advanced colorectal cancer? I would hope not. That correlation might exist, uh, but that doesn't mean that it's caused. There's other factors. So um, I hope that uh, this, you know, what I'm saying now vaccinates people against overreacting to, uh, you know, headlines that might look scientifically valid, but in fact, don't really hold up. I suspect I'll be tweeting more analogies. Sure, I appreciate it. And I have no doubt. I, I think we can expect that uh, after delaying a year's worth of elective surgery and elective procedures and elective um, tests, that naturally, uh, when we all run back to our doctors uh, vaccinated, we're going to discover all the things we didn't know were there all along, right? And we're going to blame the vaccine on it. It's, it seems inevitable. If, if, that, if we're trying to um, hedge against that kind of uh, future. Uh, is there a place that the FDA or the CDC uh, posts information on on negative side effects of the vaccine, so that they essentially say this is a real side effect and this is an imagined side effect? Or you know, yeah, I I imagine that uh, they they're thinking about how they're going to respond to that. Um, you know, they they do have databases that physicians report adverse events to, uh, but uh, those databases have you know a known downside of. It, like you don't have anything compared to, and so people can draw the wrong conclusion, right? This is exactly how uh, people drew the conclusion that uh, pediatric vaccines cause autism. You know, pediatric vaccines are given to young kids. And about the time they're diagnosed. And there's a certain chance on any given day that a child's going to be diagnosed with autism. You know, you'd have to run a big study to show whether or not it actually caused it. And all the data that people have looked at says, like, that's nonsense. It doesn't, right? So, um we aren't really going to have an easy time of doing those kinds of studies. We're going to be vaccinating everybody we can, starting with the vulnerable, right? Uh, and that means that uh, you're not going to be able to compare, you know, people who are vaccinated with people who are unvaccinated. They're different populations. So I, I think maybe the best comparison that we're going to be able to make is um, when we look at the safety events or, or the health uh, patterns of people who are vaccinated with different vaccines. Right. So uh, if uh, if you assume that people are equally likely to go in to get colorectal cancer screening um, after they've been vaccinated with one mRNA vaccine or an adenoviral vaccine or a you know, protein based vaccine, um, in theory, they should all have the same rates of, you know, uh, discovering colorectal cancer. So uh, that would that should reassure people that, oh, that's probably not the vaccine. I'm sure some people would then say all vaccines cause colorectal cancer. No, that would be the wrong. No, the human mind is a wonderful thing. <laughs> it can see patterns anywhere. Yes. Um, so you mentioned at the, at the top of the show that, um, you know, we all want to get back to normal um, after with, uh, after the vaccine. How, we're running, uh, we're getting uh, short on time here. How long do you think before um, uh, we do reach herd immunity where we can, God willing, go about our lives as we did normally? Yeah, I think um, given how effective these vaccines are, you know, uh, as people get vaccinated uh, and they get to, let's say, a week uh, or so after their second dose, I think that they're going to feel uh, empowered, assuming that the, everybody in their household is vaccinated as well, um, to go out into the world. I think that that's reasonable. So in a sense, they won't be waiting for herd immunity. They're just going to be, you know, waiting for their household to be protected. Uh you might not want to go out into the world if only you got vaccinated, but uh, not the rest of your family, because, you know, what we've seen is that these vaccines are not sterilizing. At least the mRNA vaccines aren't yet and the adenoviral vaccines aren't. 
Uh, and so you might bring it home, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, you'll try to get herd immunity in your home and then everybody is free to go about their, their business essentially uh, and start to associate with other people that have been vaccinated. And I think that uh, it's plausible that in the U.S. you're going to get to uh, enough people having been vaccinated by, let's say, May or June, that it's really going to feel a lot more normal. I, I'm optimistic looking at the number of doses that are being manufactured that uh, U.S., Europe you know, are going to get um, large swaths of their population vaccinated. I do think it's going to be interesting whether people want to hang out with unvaccinated people. <laughs> Right. Because okay. uh, your greatest chance of still getting an infection will be if you're hanging out with somebody who's unvaccinated, spewing large amounts of virus. Um, and it's not like uh, all you have to fear with this virus is, you know, hospitalization and death. Right. I mean, people report losing their sense of smell. And when it comes back, it's rewired in a wonky way so that like good food smells like rotten flesh. I mean, who wants that? Right. So it's a low chance, but, you know, to go out in the world and still take that risk, uh, you know, just because you want to hang out with uh, your anti-vaxxer friends. I don't know. You might have a different view on on how cool that is. So can I squeak in one last uh, uh, question is uh, we're all let's say this is June and we're having our our show in person. I hope you'll uh, you'll join Hubwonka in a studio someday. Um, and, uh, how long is that vaccine likely to work? Is this, are we good for our lives? Like we do with some of our, no, we, um, we don't, but I think there's really good reason to think that it's going to work for at least a year. And if it works for at least a year, uh, then, um, it's not hard to imagine incorporating it into our flu vaccines. And, uh, you know, certain companies are more likely to be able to do that than others. Um, and, you know, we'll simply think of getting our annual flu shot as uh you know flu plus you know sars shot somebody will come up with a nice name for it right um and uh there are other viruses to add to that you know set of vaccines in the future um that can also uh you know cause problems so you know it's time to think about protecting ourselves against more than flu and sars too just you know gave us a good reason to accelerate that um, so as long as it works for at least a year, I don't think it's that big a deal to think about boosting our immunity in the long run. All right. Well, we'll have to leave it there. I appreciate you uh, taking time. I think we covered everything I wanted to ask, and uh, you're very clear, and uh, um, I'm sure our listeners uh, got a lot out of that. Uh, so I hope you will join me for a follow-up. Uh, we'll all congratulate ourselves on having uh, predicted June as uh, life back to normal. Um, uh, so thank you for being on Hubwonk. I really appreciate your time, Peter. Thanks for having me, Joe. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Cheers. This has been another episode of Hubwonk. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support us. You can offer a five-star rating. You can give us a review. You can share it with friends. And of course, you can subscribe to Hubwonk on your favorite podcatcher. Uh, if you have questions for me, comments, or suggestions on future episodes, you can reach me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Hubwonk is a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.